Hello and welcome to episode 19 of the Oxfordshire Teacher Training Podcast. Regular listeners will remember back in episode 14 that I spent a very enjoyable afternoon talking with Tom Sherrington about his fantastic walkthroughs book that he's put together with Oliver Caviglioni. We had so much to discuss that we didn't have time to talk through absolutely everything in that one episode. So this episode, episode 19, will be part two of our walkthroughs discussion. If you haven't listened to the first part, I'd urge you to do that first, where we discuss behaviour and relationships, curriculum planning, explaining and modelling, and also how Tom put together the walkthroughs book with Ollie. In this episode, we're going to look at the next part of the book, where Tom will discuss questioning and feedback, practice and retrieval, and mode B teaching, where you can deliver a range of learning experiences to deepen and extend learning. So, Sit back and enjoy as we go through part two of Walkthroughs. One of the things that um, we did with, with, uh, with, with the section on questioning um, when we were uh, working through with, with our associate teachers in the, in the summer before, before they, they start in September in their, in their schools um, I was having a look at, at um, sections, um, for example, the section on cold calling. This was fascinating because um, all, all, not not all, but but the vast majority of the, of the trainees, um, the, the associate teachers that had had come in with this this um, sort of idea in their head that if you're going to be asking questions, people are going to be putting their hands up, um, and and that they, mm. they 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 were fascinated by this. Some of them had heard about. Um, things like lollipops and that, that have names on them and they pull them out, out of sticks and various other things like this. Um, but this, this cold calling was, was something that they, they were particularly interested in. And um, I certainly had, had a little request from a few of them. They said, when, when, they, when they found out I was going to be talking with you, they said, can you ask Tom a little bit about cold calling and, and how, how, um, how you, you've seen that being used really effectively um, or how you use it yourself um, in, in situations? Yeah, well, I... I, I... It's it's a it's an absolute bedrock thing that I think people need to consider. So, the purpose of cold calling, which is the cold call, it's called it's called that after the same strategies as defined by Bugglemov and Teach Like a Champion. And I, I I don't know for certain that we hundred percent explain it the way he does, but it's sort of it's this is our version of what we think it, it is, and it basically means every student should be prepared to answer every question, yeah. and in doing that, you're you're maximising their level of engagement. And thinking that's going on because you can't see um, everyone thinking or get a response but what you can do is create conditions where everyone is expecting to have to answer and so that they're more likely to be with you and following and thinking so the opposite of that so hands up um, essentially leads to a volunteer giving an answer and, and the illusion you get then is that you could ask a question like, I don't know what's seven squared, and and you know James knows it's forty nine, so he tells you, and you go, yeah, well done, and and so you have this sort of affirmation that James knows that seven squared is forty nine. Now, what about everybody else? You, you don't know what anyone else thinks, and because he volunteered, he gave you the answer because he knew it. So, what does that? Are we any further forward? The questioning needs to help you make the, the decision as a teacher about whether or not you're ready to move on or not. And one student knowing the correct answer doesn't tell you that. Uh, what, it's much more useful if you um, can see questioning as a sort of sampling process of like, let me just find out a bit about what's happening here so I know how ready we are. 
to, to do I have to go back and reteach something or are we can we move on a bit faster? And the best way to do that is to you get to know your class quite quickly, really, when you're teaching and you do this all the time. And so you sample the room in a different way. You ask, you know, Susanna, what do you think seven seven squared is? Because you you know about her and her previous knowledge, and and then you follow up with her and say, okay, so how does you work it out? And what's okay, so what's eight squared or what's seven cubed? And you follow up, and then you might just check. Okay, so James, did you hear what Susanna said? Let's check. What do you let, let's hear what you think? What do you do you are you sure you know? Let's, let's hear it from you. And you, you're sampling. And sometimes, or very often, students didn't hear what that person said. And they think, well, that's so interesting. You can see in a room and hear an answer and still not know it because that's what learning's like. And then you might go to a third person. So cold calling means everyone is kind of with you, ready, and you're sampling the room. You don't get that with hands up. You just get kids who think they know chucking answers at you and um, – what happens then is that there are always kids, I would say literally always kids, who never answer questions if that's the default, because they don't need to. And they learn to be the sort of helpless child who sits there silently but in fear of being asked a question. They learn this habit of hiding. Or if it's a call, even worse, is calling out. So if, if you just accept calling out, you don't even often know who said it. You just have the answers come at you. It's just not precise enough. So cold calling is this discipline, and it helps with behavior management because it means that you establish a principle that no, no calling up, calling out, no hands up. I will ask you questions, and you have to conspicuously kind of scan the room and look to bring in the kid at the back, the child at the front, the one by the window, the one by the door, so that they don't feel on the outskirts of it. But, so, you know, I say this strongly because I see it nearly every single day I go into a school or college a teacher teaching, thinking it's going well because three children are giving them tons of answers <laughs> and it feels good. It feels good. Yeah. Great. Oh, lovely. Oh, great answer. Lovely. Excellent. And, but it's three kids volunteering and they get into these dialogues with three children. Cold calling is a discipline to stand back and look around and yeah, let me bring you in. Let me bring you in. And it just has this invitational style. So another, the final thing to say is although cold calling has this name, which makes it sound a bit austere, it's warm invitational. It's warmly, it's like, Michael, yeah, what do you think? I want, I want to know what you think. It's, it's inviting Michael to answer. And this is what Dudlamov makes this point himself about the difference between this and, say, lollipop sticks. With lollipop sticks, Michael's name comes out of the, of the mug, you know, and I haven't picked him. I, I have no investment in it being him. It's just the, the randomnesses. So Michael just picked because the cup yield his, his lollipop stick. If I choose Michael myself, I, I'm saying to him, hey, yeah, I want to know what you think because I want to know. And I've chosen you on purpose. And it's a, it's a much higher level of investment in that student. So that's powerful. But it does mean that you have to watch out for your own bias. So you have to think, you know, what, am I leaving anyone out here? You know, who never gets picked by me? And you do have to think hard about that. So occasionally the lollipop sticks thing kind of can, or randomizers on, on whiteboards have name randomizers and things can be useful occasionally because it forces you to think okay i literally don't know who's coming up here and it's all about a repertoire but it's a fundamentally different technique to cold calling it's not the same yeah brilliant that's really really helpful i, I can imagine that that um, some of our associate teachers will be like ah right i understand this this all makes a lot, lots of sense and, uh, of course the the, the the challenge then is making sure that they actually put it into practice once once they're able to get 
back into things. Um, now, I mean, I'm I'm conscious that we you know we've 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 got two more sections to go. We, we've mentioned briefly about um, uh, Rosenstein and Willingham as, as being kind of two kind of really essential um, people where their work you know that people need to get to know that and um, obviously the principles of instruction and um, um, Dan's book on um, you know why why students don't like school. Um, why, why do you think their approaches are so valuable at the moment in teaching? What do you think it is that they've done that that's, seems to be making them stand out so much at the moment? I, I just think it's this recognition, it's a sort of growing awareness that um, one of the barriers that we have for children learning things is that we don't place enough emphasis on retrieval practice. And um, both Rosenstein and Winningham include that in their, in their work, that practice and being generative in doing that so not looking at looking at the source but trying to think do i know it and it, it's useful and rosenstein uh, you know picked this up decades ago that effective teachers did a sort of very routinely check that students could remember things that they had learned before in effect in a low stakes way and through you know a daily review weekly and monthly review so reviewing material so he, he he was picking that up a long time ago and um it's now backed up by the cognitive science that Dan Winningham brings in about working memory and how if we uh, don't link things actively consciously to our long-term memory and build connections with our existing schema, those ideas can just be forgotten. And in fact, if we don't practice retrieving things that we do already know, we can forget those as well. So just our, our understanding about, about memory has developed. And so the, it's this link between Rosenstein's kind of observational kind of, uh, thinking and the cognitive science it's the fact that they 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 chime that they that they that they're in harmony that has given them this added strength and and it does people recognize it so i get it so the fact that i can't remember those things isn't because i haven't been listening or been told it enough it's because i haven't practiced using it enough yeah and so let's do more of that and again going back to the thing i said earlier not just get a few but get everyone doing it so that's that's so you need routines and habits and structures in lessons so that every child has the opportunity to practice remembering and practice retrieving things. And that's where quizzing and other sorts of practical strategies come in, where you have a mechanism for getting everyone to think, do I know it? And under, uh, understanding their own knowledge gaps. So that's another thing, you know, being, and I, and I think there's a, a really interesting sort of thing through Winningham's work around understanding and sort of breaking down a sort of slightly misunderstood concept that there's a difference between understanding things and remembering them. And, and he says, well, you know, of course you can remember some things you don't understand, but uh, that's kind of trivial. But you can't understand anything <laughs> that, you can't, that, you don't, that you don't remember. That you, understanding is, he says it in his book, understanding is remembering in disguise. It's sort of, understanding something means I, I, know, I know things that connect. It's not like a separate thing. So when teachers are saying things like, I don't want them to just know it, I want them to understand it, you're saying, yeah, that's not a separate process. I need them, it's just knowing more. It's knowing more, knowing more connections, knowing them deep, more deeply. So in other words, practice routines around remembering things actually helps you understand things. It's not opposite to that. And so Winningham gives us this insight into how do we get to, to deeper understanding. He has a whole chapter in his work around uh, understanding difficult concepts and he basically says you start with understanding simple concepts you know making sure the basics are secure and then having narrative structures which link ideas there's no shortcut you can't just understand concepts which are con conceptually difficult 
by bypassing the slightly maybe harder work thing of just remembering things. So I, I think, um, you know, the, the, that's why it's happening now. But and, and some people think it's to do with the curriculum and the types of assessment has a field. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I think now we have exams which require students to know off by heart quotes and formulae in maths and in English. It's a very sort of basic version of this. If you go into a history exam, you have to tell the story of, you know, how Khrushchev responded in Hungary in 1956. You're asked a question about it. You need to know all the facts. No, no. And, and you, you need to know them. So there is an expectation that in exams, children need to know more things from memory. So there's part of partly, I guess, that's, that's it. But they, that's not the only reason. It's because actually by knowing them, you're able to understand things and explain them better. Anyway, I, I, I could go on about that a bit more. The main, the main thing for me is that we get children to practice explaining things. Um, and so that they, if you really know something, you can explain it. And there are stu- structures you can do in lessons where students explain things to each other from knowledge that they've got, not just, uh, and then they check if they're accurate. Uh, and I think that's important that we get, you know, build those things in. Fantastic. Uh, really, really helpful stuff there. Really good. Um, the, the, the final section uh, in, in the book, in terms of the, the, the six kind of big, uh, big techniques that you talk about, is mode B teaching. And um, if, if anyone's mm. uh, read Tom's book, uh, The Learning Rainforest, that's something I know that you, you talk about in, in uh, a lot more detail in there as well. Um, so um, maybe, maybe just in terms of kind of thinking about how you weave together mode A and mode, mode B, um, uh, if, if, you're, if, you're some, if you're a mentor working with, with somebody um, in, in the early stages of their, their training, um, how might you go about this? Is, do, you, do you feel that maybe you want to be doing a bit more of the mode A stuff first before you start to weave in mode B? Or um, what, what would you do? Yeah, definitely. I, I think it's, uh, I, I would say it's true that uh, most teachers need to be really good at mode a teaching which means instructional teaching you need to be able to explain things ask questions marshal a whole class of children um to to do that well model get them to practice and and that is instructional teaching and until you really master that the other things can seem um kind of a bit like a, a, a bridge too far but well, no, with it, teachers develop at different rates and uh, sometimes very, very rapidly. So whilst you're developing your mode A teaching, by the way, these names are just ones I made up. I mean, there's, just, there's no official terminology here. Yeah. Just, I call it that because to distinguish between them. Yeah. There are other things which children need to do in the fullness of time, but not sort of necessarily every week or every month even, but over the course of a unit or, or a year. You know, when, when do the children get a chance to maybe design something make a choice about something present something um have a debate about something um make something you know have options that, that doesn't have to be that strong a f- feature of your curriculum but are they really never going to get those things and i would say no of course they should but so you don't have to do them that much you just need to design opportunities which are really rigorous but um planned so one of my favorite ones to say would be open ended response tasks Again, I wouldn't do that for every single homework because that becomes a pressure. But to design an activity at some point in a in a term or a year, where the students need to uh, select a mode of presentation of some information which they have then designed. So 
and why why do you, why why is that important? It's because in doing that, they they have to take a risk, they have to make a creative decision, and they have to then think about what they know and what they don't know, and they have to. It's just it's a deeper process, and then just always giving very precise instructions about everything what to do, and I, I, they learn what quality means in a different form. And then as a teacher, you get surprised and delighted by the kinds of things children can produce, which you perhaps might never have imagined they could do. And you get a nice variety in the lesson um, that follows a task like that. So you've got different ways of exploring information, which often leads to rich kind of discussion. And that can be really, really rewarding. Uh, I've got a video. The students made a video about this science concept. Let's have a look at it. Brilliant. And the students are going to present their you know, understanding of this phenomenon. That's, let's listen to them. And those sorts of things are valuable in the richness of a whole curriculum. They don't, and so it's about the blend. And, and I and I always talk about the sort of 80-20 split as a science teacher, but for some people that might be way more like 95 to 5. You know, they hardly do any mode B teaching, but they're still there. So you have, when it's done, it has to be done well. So that's, that's what I'm thinking. And early on in your career, definitely, you need to be able to do the, 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 the instructional stuff well first, partly because if the students don't have really deep, secure knowledge the mode B stuff can end up being a bit woolly and thin. So they don't get carried away with the idea that, oh, let's, I love debating. Debating's really good. Let's all have a debate. If the children don't really know much about the issues, it, it, there's nothing worse than a debate amongst people who know very little about the topic. You think, oh, I've gone a bit too early here. Let's teach them a bit more <laughs> first. And the debate will follow when they've got the knowledge base to have a proper informed discussion. And then, and then the debate might be quite useful. But uh, it's that sort of thing. You need to pitch the moment when the mode B teaching becomes, you know, becomes a rich experience rather than a, a shallow one. And that's, that can come with experience of teaching a topic for a while. But it's there as in, in the whole book because my, our view is very clearly, we're not, gonna, we're not writing a, a walkthrough's guide to instructional teaching. We're trying to do it for, that's a bit more universal than that. And, you know, hopefully we, we're getting the right balance there. Brilliant. That's really, really great. Um, that's been absolutely fantastic um, to, to kind of have a, a deeper look through this. Um, obviously, um, we, we hope that everybody who's listening to this has already seen a copy of uh, Teaching Walkthroughs. Um, have a really good look through it. Um, those people who are training with us this year, um, you'll, you'll have already started to see some of the, uh, the video material and other things that, um, that goes alongside the, the book and, the, and the, well, the series of books as it's going to be now. Um, um, just perhaps, just to, just to finish with Tom, um, the, you you have um, what you call your your um, five point adapt um, yeah. model. Maybe just just to finish with, um, it would be good for us just to have a little think about what what you mean by this, and um, maybe just talk us you know where where that where the ideas for that came from and um, why you feel it's so important. Okay, so right. Right, right at the time um, when we started writing walkthroughs, um, the Rosenstein booklet that I wrote before had, was out, and and we I was getting quite a lot of um, feedback and sort of signs from people who were going a bit sort of robotic on it. I think, oh gosh. In other words, you know, I, I remember someone on Twitter saying something to me like, oh, "We've made these our non-negotiables," and I just thought, <laughs> "Oh no, my God." Please don't, please don't do that. You know, that everything in teaching is negotiable, you know. So even Rosenstein wouldn't be saying, you must do these 10 things, you know. He's, defi- he's describing things which effective teachers typically do. And 
everyone, you know, and Graham Nuttall is another great r- r- person, talks about this in, in detail. You know, teaching isn't something you uh, can instruct people to do. It's something you have to sort of develop for the context using all the range of tools that you have at your disposal and work out what is effective in getting ideas across to those children there with their knowledge that they already have. And so even if you think as a leader, I, to, you know, belt and braces, I want everyone to do these things. That makes me feel good. It's not going to work, you know, because teachers need to uh, find out and work out the effectiveness of something for, the, for a number of reasons. One of them, the children are identical. They're similar often, but they're not literally the same. So you can't, especially in terms of what they already know. But also teachers are people with different characteristics. So as a person, I might have a, a natural inclination to find cold calling really easy because it's kind of what I do all the time. I like to be the one who decides, and that's easy for me. But someone else, it's actually really hard. And it's actually quite hard for them to, to do. And because of that, they, they don't, and they, maybe they just walk around at something. So and I could go through all the other ones. Some teachers are really natural at kind of modelling. Like, let me show you what I've done before. And others, I don't know, it just feels a little bit more difficult. So different teachers find things different, come to them more easily and more difficult. And then there's also the subject context. So is it rather valid to talk about cold calling in drama as well as in maths? Well, well, no, it's just not, not relevant. So right from the beginning of writing the book, we were saying we're, not, we're, we're going to do this thing where we've got a walk, walkthroughs in the sense that we want to be clear about what we mean, but they're not rules. They're not 100% absolutes. So we, we developed this acronym about over, over a couple of, sort of you know, meetings, uh, ADAPT. And what it means is the first thing is you need to attempt things. You, how do you know what cold calling really is until you've had a go at it? Well, not, you don't really know. You sort of think you do, but until you've tried it, you think, oh, okay, maybe that's what it means, and you've got a better idea of it. So, but even if you can't practice it for real, you can walk it through mentally, so you can start imagining it. And I think that's actually quite a strong, strong process to, to mentally rehearse things to start evaluating them. Uh, adapt means develop. So you might think, okay, well, I don't, there are, there's a couple of steps missing here. Let me fill them in. So in my class, I have to go over there, and then I've got those students here, and I need to develop it to be a bit more precise for me. So that's what develop means. Adapt is a bit more fundamental change. Like Tom is saying I should do it this way on, in all the walkthrough. I don't think, I don't agree. <laughs> I think... I don't want to do in that sequence. I would do it this way around. Okay. So you adapt it. You totally change it because you just don't feel that's right for you. And as long as a group of people adapt it in a similar way, the P means practice. So like anything, you don't really know how effective you're being until you've got it's something working well. So it's, you have to sustain it. Uh, you know, doing a bit of cold calling every couple of lessons isn't really the deal. It's have I yet got to the point where it's my absolute habit week in, week out, well, so that's only going to happen if you're practicing it, like making it a thing that you're working on. And then finally, the T is for tests. So we're, we're trying to encourage people not to just rely on this, the, the, the feeling about things. This is a little bit hard to do in, in reality, but it's a kind of a, it's a kind of a bit of a mark in the sand. Don't just talk about things like, how's it going? Oh, yeah, it's great. You know, it's not like how it feels. How do I know it's going great? Well, well I, need to, I need to test it. Am I generally getting better responses from my students? Am, am I getting more students involved in the questioning? When they give an answer, are they giving me three or four sentences instead of a, a one-word grunt? When they write it down in an essay, am I getting better answers? It's that sort of thing. Test it. 
am I now getting better results from my students in one form or another? And that's what we what we mean. So adapt it basically is a way of thinking through these ideas uh, so that you they become your ideas that you own and that you are feel secure in doing because they seem to work rather than because you're doing them because you're told to by someone yeah. else. Yeah. That's, just, that, that's that's the idea. Yeah, no, really, really great. Really, really good. Um, and, um, you know, I, this is, this is just sort of a, a plea for anybody using this book just because it's near the end. Don't forget it, please. Um, you know, it's, it's such, it's such a crucial part of, of the whole, of the whole book, um, to, to make sure that you're thinking about that. That's that idea that it's it's not a set of rules, and it's interesting mm. talking with various people about different things in the world of initial teacher training um, over over the last kind of six months or so. Uh, I remember talking with Sam Twizzleton, and she was talking about um, that the ITT core content is not a set of rules. And I remember talking with um, Janet Pierce uh, from Ofsted all about the new um, in, uh, initial teacher training um, inspection framework, but that's not a set of rules. And this kind of message is really important for for people who are working in teaching bear in mind is that we're not following a rigid set of rules but there's an awful lot of fantastic work that's been done and i include this this book within that um uh, that's that's there to really help you to to be the best teacher that you possibly can it's been absolutely great um we're, we're loving using this book um great We've been using um, lots of your material and Ollie's material for, for a number of years anyway, and certainly Rose and Shine and Willingham have been at the, you know, the, top, the top of the, the things that have been there in our thinking for um, really since we started out. Um, but it's been really interesting to see just how many people have, have uh, really um, sort of grabbed this book in particular and, and thought, we love the fact that we've got these things which are, are there in a really quick, succinct way for me just to either remind myself if I'm more experienced or to just kind of think, uh, what, what do we mean by that? Ah, now it's all making sense. So, um, yeah, really looking forward to um, volume two and volume three um, <laughs> when they come out. So, is, so have you got any, any dates in mind for those? Is it going to be one a year or? Yeah, basically, I mean, the volume two is probably would have finished writing it by Christmas and then um, it's about publication schedule probably February or something next year and then the volume three yeah probably a whole year from then um, yeah. and then we're focusing mainly at the moment on the the, the, the materials to go around that so schools can uh, you know have we're making lots of video support and linking yeah. it all together via yeah. our website so that's that's our current kind of program thank you so much it's been a real pleasure talking to you this afternoon Tom um, no, thank you, Matthew. Thank you. And um, yeah, so uh, we'll, we'll we'll keep you informed on how how it all goes with with everybody. And um, yeah, and uh, be interesting to see how everybody deals with with uh, with all of this when they get back. Um, assuming that we've got <laughs> class classes of of uh, you know full classes with um with kids doing normal things at, uh, at in in a, in a It'll happen eventually. <laughs> we'll get there in the end. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, thank you so much for stopping. It's been a real real pleasure. Yeah.